Can I say we'll give it up? Rick Hines. Hey, how's it going? Good. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for uh, coming down and, and uh, having a chat with me. Absolutely. Well, I was happy to run into you. And uh, when you mentioned this, I thought it'd be a, a really cool thing. I don't think I've ever done one before like this. So. Oh, good. Yeah. You're, you're a podcast virgin. Truly. Oh, breaking Rick Hines. <laughs> podcast. Be gentle, please. <laughs> Rick, did you grow up here? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I, I moved here when I was two. Um, I've spent time living in a few other places, but I consider Phoenix my home. So, yeah. yeah. What are some early musical memories? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, my mom was always a very musical person. She was a, a very good singer, uh, along with her sister. They used to sing harmonies and stuff, and so they were always very musical. Mm. And growing up, my dad, uh, my stepdad had a, a really big sort of 70s music collection of all the classic albums. And he had an old reel-to-reel that he'd you know play stuff on. Oh, cool. So, I mean, I was ingrained in, you know, I mean, actually not as much heavy classic rock. It was my mom was more uh, Crystal Gale, mm. uh, Tina Turner. Uh, but my dad loved Zeppelin and stuff. So it was, it was a little bit of both, but mm. it was like... Always like strong female singers, uh, folky. She really liked that. And then he would listen to a little bit of Hendrix, a little bit of, you know, and then uh, even like Gloria Gaynor. Uh-huh, I remember sure. when I Will Survive came out, my mom would love that, love that <laughs> song. And I, that was, in, you know, embedded in my brain for, for, for eternity. So, yeah. Crystal Gale. What a stunner. Yeah. I remember seeing her, I don't know, she just would perform on some show. And just like maybe my first like crush could have been Crystal Gale, super long hair. I was down to her below down, her knees. I yeah, think. yeah, and just beautiful and sang like a bird. Yeah. Um, di- <laughs> speaking of Gloria Gaynor, did you ever play Cake's version of "I Will Survive"? Is that what it was? Was it was it Cake that did it? Yeah, I believe it was Cake. Did you ever play that for just to be like, hey? Full circle no. shit. No, I never did that. No, my mom was not a big cake fan. I mean, not that she really listened to them, but I, I don't think I ever had that moment with her. But I mean, I, I truly do remember being, you know, Christmas morning. She got that on vinyl and cracking that open and like listening to that like over and over and her disco dancing to it. So, yeah. Yeah. What um what records kind of spoke to you after that? I mean, like, when did you say like, this is my music? Like this is this speaks to me. Well, I had kind of a, a probably junior high started. Uh, my friend and I really got into Journey, mm. and I still have a very soft, like a soft spot in my heart for them. I still love them, um, unironically, and I don't have any justification. <laughs> if someone hates them, I can say I, I get it, you know. But how do you hate it? How do you hate it? Well, though? I think sometimes it's just like when things have been played so often. Okay. Oversaturated. Yeah. And the whole like, you know, rock ballad and stuff kind of started with them. So I just think it's one of those things where it becomes a whole genre and then people hate the genre, including the originators, you know, it's like, it's like, uh, uh, Eddie Vedder, you know, singing the way he does, no one sang like him and then everyone sang like him and then, and then it was Yarling and everyone hated that. But it's like, you can't blame Eddie for just being Eddie. Right. You can't blame Journey for just being Journey. I mean, but you can't deny those songs. Those are great. Yeah anthemic fucking songs yeah and every motherfucker in that band was an assassin oh yeah neil Schoen, one of my favorites i Love mean him. so other guitar players that inspired you early on 
Well, he definitely was the first one, even though the, the strange thing was I came back to Journey as I be, after I became a guitarist. And for whatever reason, all the solos before I learned to play guitar, I just didn't even realize how good they were until yeah. I went back to it. Yeah. Um, but he would definitely be the first, like, guitar hero i guess that i had where yeah. just like pl- but playing to the the song the melody even though he could just burn yeah um and then i transitioned pretty quickly from that to iron maiden whoa yeah just I got into metal coming. yeah all right yeah. little metal kid running around phoenix that's it and and i love the imagery i loved you know their their mascot eddie i had posters all over my wall terrifying yeah but still you know i mean it's one of those things it's like you're fascinated and terrified at the same time yeah and, uh, I remember drawing him on, you know, right on your trapper keeper on my trapper keeper. <laughs> yep. You are absolutely right. Come on. Yeah. Iron Maiden logo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I went down, I really went down the metal path that way for a long time. So from there I went to Metallica and then there was like no going back. So mm-hmm. once I hit that, there were definitely guitar oriented, like hard rock bands that I liked just for the guitar. Mm-hmm. But if I was going to like the music entirely, it was Metallica, it was Megadeth. It was, I mean, I was really heavy stuff at the time. Mm-hmm. And then later, you know, as I worked at uh, Zia records, it, it definitely cracked my music world open. Uh, okay. So this is a little bit of Arizona history. Uh, Zia records. What? So they had what one location at that time or, or, or was it? I think they had a couple because I remember buying records like, like at Zia on, I want to say Indian school and, I don't know, like 19th Avenue or something. They had, oh. a, had a place. And then, I mean, they moved around a bunch. Okay. All right. But I ended up working at Zia when I was like at 20, 20 or 21 on uh, Thunderbird and 19th Avenue. And that one's still there. Mm-hmm. It's a lot bigger than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, they've had several different stores all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they've, yeah, I mean, they've found a way to, through every uh, media change, change right. from you know records, cassettes, CDs, back to records, right? Yeah, and VHS tapes to DVDs yeah. to whatever. To, yeah, that 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 uh, I would imagine that that would be a very hard business model when 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 the medium is constantly changing. Yeah, you know, when did you uh, when did you get to the guitar and and why the guitar? Well, I think. Honestly, I can I can uh, chalk it up to wanting to impress a friend mm-hmm. or become a friend of someone in my class who played guitar, and uh, I kept touting, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm gonna get a guitar." And I was of the age as middle school, I suppose, uh, where we were started to become friends, and I would you know I oh my mom's gonna she's gonna buy a guitar for me. I'm she's gonna buy me this. Oh, and and here's the funny thing. I don't know if I'm I'm assuming the, I'm talking to musicians. Uh, when I say this, Les Paul, I didn't know that was a person's name. I thought it was French. <laughs> and so there was a, there was a the car Pauls. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to get a lay Paul. And he's like, uh, that's Les Paul. I'm like, no, it's French. He said, no, that's a person. And I, I was like, uh, oh, that's what I meant. Of course. That's what I'm yeah, so sorry. That's what, I meant. what did I say? Oh yeah, yeah. No, no, I meant the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I wanted to so badly, uh, play guitar just to impress him. So, after some, you know, convincing to my dad, um, we went up to Central Pond, which I don't think is there anymore. It's like something else, but right up, you know, in, right by Bianco there. No, no, it was the, there was a one further north up in was at Sunny Slope right there. Okay, it was you know they used to have a bunch of instruments, and I got a, a wood colored '70s Strat. Yeah, and uh, started to learn tablature, and uh, yeah, I just 
I tried to learn Purple Haze, and I had the the you know the sheet music in front of me, and I had him come over to show that I was going to be in his band, and it took me thirty minutes to get through the song one note at a time, you know, as I was learning. So, how did you? Where did you learn to read music? Well, I guess saying I read music is maybe kind of not entirely true. I know tablature, which okay. is kind of a notation. Oh, where they tabs. Use, yeah, sure. tabs. Okay, yeah, yeah. Like, which everyone uses now. But at the time, there were a few magazines that did a pretty good job. And, and I can still really sight read that really quickly. It's yeah. a lot harder, I think, to, to, to look at musical notation for guitar mm-hmm. versus piano. Because as mm-hmm. you know, you can play that note in a bunch of different places. Right. A middle C is always a middle C on a piano. Right. So anyway, to me, it was it was easier. So that's what I was looking at the tablature for Purple Haze and going doot, 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 doot. Yeah. It was painful, I'm sure, to watch. <laughs> Did you get into the band? Uh, I actually had to vie for the band because there was another guy trying to learn at the same time because the, this, the, the, the friend, Sean, he, he'd been playing for a while, so he knew how to play. So it took a while and, and that was at the time of, you know, being, um, young enough and, um, geeky enough Mm -hmm. to not really have girlfriends or anything like that. And, uh, just spent all this time in my room trying to learn how to play and, and, Progressed enough that I got to join the band finally. It took probably like a year. And this is like a grade school situation or high school uh, situation? Middle school into high school. So I think I, I got my first guitar at 15. So I guess I was, I was I'm sorry, it was high school, not not middle school. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was when I got it. And that's when we started our, our high school metal band was like, I think it probably had to be 86 or 87. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you do like a band like a high school band stuff, like um, concert band or marching band or anything like that? I didn't do anything like that. I yeah. did take a guitar class because I assumed it would be a, a no-brainer, easy credit. But it was, you know, back in those days, it was horrible stuff. They'd plug you into a, a, a old keyboards and make you play the Volga Boatman <laughs> on, on horrible guitars. And it was like, why anyone wanted to play guitar to, after taking that class is beyond me, you know? I was like, I think they were trying to actually make you not want to play guitar. <laughs> Steer you away. Yes, from, yeah. from, you know, from the satanic. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Right. Um, so played in kind of garage bands through high school. Yeah, that same band then became Reckless Abandon was the name of the band. Come on. Yeah. I love high school band names. Yeah. And it was, it was, you know, it was three of us for a while, and then we found a singer and a bass player, and then from that, it definitely became uh, a legitimate band where we were playing shows with other metal bands in the hmm. valley and stuff, and uh, yeah, I mean, we did that for several years, uh, just trying to make it, you know, because mm-hmm. that's... At the time, that's I invested all my energy into that. And you said, I uh, sorry, late eighties. Yeah, so I think eighty uh, nine is probably when we were starting to really play out. Eighty nine, ninety. Mm-hmm. And what what clubs? Well, there was uh, the Mason Jar. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, there was a which place, is now Rebel Lounge. Yep. Okay. Yeah, uh, a place called Buddies up on Grand Avenue. Um, I'm trying to think. There, a lot of all the places that we used to play, minus the Mason Jar, are just they're just gone. Yeah. They're yeah. gone. Um, the Nile, I think. Uh, there's a few different spots. I guess the Nile's still around. What was like? Was there a metal scene? Yeah, yeah, there was. You know, uh, there we probably played or played with roughly you know five or ten bands in the in the valley. There was like Lurch Kills, um, Pestilence. All the names, the, especially the heavy metal bands. They oh, had the yeah. best names. Pestulence. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we played with those bands, uh, Hate Incorporated, 
uh, you know, always very vivid imagery and <laughs> there was the whole, you know, outfit, sure. you know, jean, jean vest with the patches on it and the big white puffy shoes for some reason, right. you know, tight jeans. And then of course your favorite, uh, metal shirt. You always got to wear that. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Did you do, um, did you do the college thing? I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I was looking towards doing it, but I was going to be a rock star, so mm. I didn't need that. And right. my parents, they just, they were working so hard uh, to raise my younger brother, who was a, a handful, oh. and I seemed very determined. So they're like, well, well, we'll see what happens. So except for a couple of classes that I took at Phoenix College, I was just like, no, I'm going to make it. Huh. Yeah. Whoa. Love it. Well, it could have really backfired on me pretty badly um luckily it didn't but yeah so what do you do now you you get you have your high school diploma you're out playing in a metal band it's the late 80s early 90s what happens at that moment well i think the problem that we always had is we thought well if we're good enough we'll just get discovered Mm. you know uh i didn't know how we didn't know how to market ourselves we didn't really have a manager we didn't know you know, certain things we tried submitting demo tapes and stuff, but you know, it was a weird time in Phoenix and yeah, there weren't a ton of metal bands here and, uh, it didn't really go anywhere. And also we started to transition because as I worked at Zia that I mentioned before, uh, I started listening to like Soundgarden and sub pop stuff. And I started going, you know, maybe the metal thing is kind of played out. And so I definitely asked the band to kind of follow me on a journey that where we kind of transitioned into more of like a Soundgarden thing as we got later into the the, the band's history. And that was hard for our singer, uh, who was a, a true metalhead screamer. Yeah, right. You know, he wanted to sing like King Diamond. And we were like, well, can you sing more like, you know, I mean, maybe not Chris Cornell, but, but you know, a little bit more, less, less screamy, more... Melodic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did... That's when, for me, that's when I was like, that's my music. Mm-hmm. Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Smashing Pumpkins, Alice in Chains. Like, what an incredible time uh, for music. And and it almost correlates to kind of the end of, of I mean, this is maybe something up for debate, but the the industry was changing mm-hmm. right and i feel like the like the last great um say uh, i don't even know how to put this but you know the the industry is kind of changing the music is changing how um art um uh, music is consumed is changing all of these things are changing uh ticket pricing uh, the medium through which you consume the music is changing. The style is changing. I don't know. It, I, it just felt like that's that's my shit, you know. And unlike metal, I found that I could sing some of this stuff. It sits in my range. I could at least, I can sing Alive by Pearl Jam. I mean, I can't do the Chris Cornell shit. Yeah. I could sing... You know, some Scott Weiland shit, SDP. I could sing Billy Corrigan, Smashing Pumpkins. Like, it just felt like the vocal range came down like in an octave. And I was like, great. Okay, I'm into this. I can sing it. I connect with the angst. I'm 16. I'm ready to fuck shit up or whatever. 
did your band make that transition kind of from the metal thing to the grunge thing? Half of us did, and then half of us kind of went, well, we'll see where this goes, because mm-hmm. I was pretty passionate about it. I, I felt like you. I, I was ready for that sort of sea change, mm-hmm. and it was. It was a great time. Like, being at Zia, like, I remember oh doing the midnight selling of Nevermind. Wow. The midnight selling of Bad Motor Finger. The midnight selling, I mean, of, like, the Black Album, which is my favorite, but, like, still, it was a big deal. Guns N' Roses, like, seeing all this stuff kind of happen, I... I remember doing a display for Nevermind up on the walls of Zia where I drew them and I bought like fit like a, a fishnet and all this stuff. And I had this whole sort of thing that where I created this display just to highlight the album because initially a couple of people came in and then a few more and then a few more. And then like six months later, I've got, you know, wrestling bros like coming in and like, Hey, I want that Nirvana. Uh, what's the, you know, the smells thing, whatever that is. <laughs> You know, it was just it just seeing them blow up was great and horrific at the same time. And right. Pearl Jam too, you know. Right. It's it's but I mean, yeah, what a what a great time. I don't I don't like being a person that is so strong it's like, oh, the music that I loved when I was eighteen to twenty four was the best music that ever right. was. It's right. easy to do. Right. I think there's great music now, but but it was a absolutely great time. Just so many good bands. And there's like a punk rock ethos, which I think maybe ties into what you're saying about the singing thing where it's like what I think they brought sometimes was it wasn't about heroic so- solos with the exception of Cornell. It wasn't about operatic singing. It right. was like, Hey, you can do this too. You can mm-hmm. play four chords. Mm-hmm. You can kind of do some of this, you know, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think that helped. Um, I'm kind of oversimplifying, but I do think for some folks where they were like, I can't play this metal stuff. They're like, I can get behind this because I right. think I can do this. And then maybe it's more melodic and maybe it's just, it's more speaking to the people instead of just so specialized. I mean, you know, the 80s, late 80s of like poison and all that. It just got so yeah. bloated and yes. so over the top. Oh, it was God. it was time. So the story goes is brought to you by Gensler Amplification. Come on, you know about Gensler. I've been talking all about their stuff. Um, well, this is what I think you should do. Go to GenslerAmplification.com. That's G-E-N-Z, as in Zeppelin, L as in Leroy, E as in Echo, R as in Rhinoceros. Amplification.com. Go there. They have a bunch of stuff. They have great, if you're a bass player, they have great bass cabs. If you're a singer-songwriter, they have the great Acoustic Array Pro, which is killing. And I'm really digging this new REQ EQ pedal take a moment go go support a sponsor of your favorite podcast so the story goes gensleramplification.com don't make me spell it again were there like in-store performances that you remember from that time that stick out like this is back in the day when when the bands would come into the record store do an afternoon thing to promote their show in the evening or whatever did it, any of that happen at Zia where you when you were no there? unfortunately not I mean we definitely had some some people come in but usually it was just to kind of sign stuff um, I ended up working at Tower Records too and even there like I remember bands coming in but they would just sign stuff they mm. wouldn't necessarily play for some reason they weren't mm. really doing like musical in stores at a lot of the, sh- the at least where I was at mm. the one place I do remember was the the original not the original but the second Stinkweeds um, mm. in Tempe I remember seeing like bands play there and that was definitely when I was way more into to the more alternative stuff 
I'd see some really cool gigs of smaller independent bands playing there in really small spaces. And that was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite from that era, like a favorite band from that early 90s grunge thing? Well, what's funny is I rarely listen to Nirvana anymore as much as I love them and respect them. Um, I don't even own Nevermind on on any format now mm. because I played it so much. Yeah. Um, I just was finally able to go back to Pearl Jam's 10 after uh-huh. taking like a 10-year break because that one too, I listened to right. it so much. The band I didn't like at the time, who's my favorite, is Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah. they That first album came out and I, I thought it was like kind of like taken from derogatory like or not uh, derivative of of the other bands you know, uh, he was like i am i right. you know like that sort of and the guitar tone was like super chorusy and it was so big sounding i was like uh i don't really i think they're just trying to rip off the other bands but ultimately they kind of to me proved themselves as they got more and more interesting yeah and the chord progressions got really cool and wyland proved to be an amazing sort of chameleon singer yes and the production on them is great. So they're the ones that I generally go to more than anyone else. And, I mean, Soundgarden, you know, for me, um, super unknown, right? And then the one after that... Uh, down on the Upside. Down on the Upside. Yeah. Sonically pretty similar, yeah. right? Approach kind of similar. Stone Temple Pilots, record to record, was drastically different. It's, it's, I akin it to, like, Radiohead. Listening to the bends is going to be very different uh, from uh, pick a, re- a later record. The fucking next record was drastically different. Like, you go on a journey. If you're a fan of that band, you're going on a fucking journey. Song approach is going to be different. Sonics are different. Like, instrumentation is going to be different. Um, and I really enjoyed the ride with STP. Yeah. Soundgarden is probably like a close second. And, and sometimes a first, depending on on the month or whatever. I mean, it's... What they did as well is is pretty impressive, and and if you listen to that first Soundgarden album versus Super Unknown, it's like it's a very different band too, and that's mm-hmm. that's pretty interesting because I don't think they ever initially they almost sounded like goth or something, mm-hmm. sound like Bauhaus or something, mm-hmm. and to change from that to like something really really you know heavy, but. I go back to those albums. I listen to Chris sing, and mm. I don't know that we'll have another singer like that again. Yeah, I, I don't know. He was like. One of a kind, you yeah. know, one of a kind. I completely agree. Early memories of Mill? Yeah. Well, I remember going with friends uh, to Mill when they would close it off during the summer. <laughs> what? And, yeah. I've never heard of this. Yeah, yeah. They used to close off Mill and University, and they would be like, people would walk around and bands would play outside. And I remember seeing a band called Silly Putty, which is this sort of hippie, you know, groovy band with like a fretless bass. And... uh yeah, they'd have all kinds of stuff out there, and and a couple times the 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 metal band that I was in, we did love the Beatles, so we talked about like bringing our acoustics and doing like some Beatles songs just out there for fun. But yeah, they used to close it off and and make that you know really really cool, just like a walking area. Close yeah, it off like, to cars. like literally from University all the way up to almost like where the the mill is mm-hmm. would be closed off to traffic. Wow, and then people would just be out during the summer. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, I remember seeing, I can't tell you how many bands I saw at uh, Gibson's uh-huh. or Chewy's or whatever it was called, you know, like um, everything from like Afghan wigs and soul coughing and low and uh, 
like Alan Holdsworth, like playing at, at uh, you know, Edsel's Attic. I remember that. Huh. Um, Long Wongs. Sure. I remember when that was like the hub. That was right. that was where you know Gin Blossoms pretty much got their start in refreshments. And one of the the, the biggest excitement, or one of the most exciting things that I did in in the band that followed was that oh we're playing we're playing Long Wongs. This uh-huh. is going to be a big deal. Right. But we were definitely not the band that they expected because at the time gin blossoms, I mean, it was like, if you didn't sound like that on mail, you were screwed. <laughs> right. You were fucked. Can we say fuck? Yes. Yeah, fuck. Yeah, say you fuck were fucked. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. So at the time, I don't know if you know, Sarah Cena, like she was, she's been a, a mainstay in, in, um, the scene and used to book a lot of shows and she would book at, uh, long Wong's right there on Tempe. And she pretty much decided who lived or died in Long Longs. And I remember playing that night and just seeing her behind the bar. And I was like, we're not playing here again. And wow. That was pretty much the case. Did you, and did that kind of happen? Like, um, I mean, obviously, I remember hearing Gin Blossoms for the first time in, I guess it's high school. But um, did it really change the scene? Like, change it sonically? You know, everyone is trying to chase this thing. Because they must have been fucking local heroes, Right. I mean, they were, they were, I mean, when you think about like famous Phoenix people, there aren't a ton and they just came out at the right time. And so like, they were like a mini Nirvana, like it exploded mm-hmm. the entire scene Yeah, and it became kind of what was considered college rock. I mean, huh. almost its own thing from, you know, college rock used to be kind of indie music or whatever, right. but it almost separated that. And then, you know, the refreshments and like that whole thing, just, it became, that's what you play. Mm-hmm. That's what you play like, you know, and and it was such an, a strange uh, thing that with like the gin blossoms, like they they struck lightning. Yeah, holy shit, they did. Yeah, and it was crazy. And and the main the chief songwriter of that band left right after that album was done. Right. And they got uh, um, Scott. Right. And then Doug, like you know, he ended up. Uh, I think he committed suicide, unfortunately. But it was just yeah. like once that happened, they had all this momentum, and that was just really hard for them to kind of carry through you know they did they actually had a couple of great albums after that but it was i know it had to be hard for them Mm. and um a good friend of mine scott is playing drums for them now and i i think it's awesome that they've kind of kept the longevity where they can still be playing and doing stuff but but yeah in in early 90s if you didn't sound like that if it wasn't (laughs) sort of you know those the the jangle rock or whatever like nope and so we were like, you know, we thought we were cool playing like Afghan wigs and we had these really sort of trippy songs and it was like, no go, you shall not pass, you shall not pass. So, uh, yeah. Were you, uh, I remember that, um, I, I mean, I'm sure they had records before this, but that commercial meat puppets record that, you know, um, uh, uh, Oh fucking hell! What was it? Was it Stillwater? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember getting that record, and I was like, "Oh fuck, this is this is killing." So there, I mean, but so there was a little bit of diversity coming out of. Yeah, Meat Puppets were great. I just think they were independent. They were, you know, on SST, they were such an indie sort of band. I didn't really know about them until a little later. The funny thing is, the guitarist I was mentioning that I wanted to play in the band with, he lived close to one of the Kirkwood brothers. And there was this big rumor, his friend had said that, that, that they moved out of the place and they just wrecked it, but that they had left, he said, two hefty bags full of weed behind at the house. <laughs> and so the two friend got... hefty bags. Yeah. yeah. Trash can. Yeah. Like, the, like the, yes, the 50 full gallon. Yeah. 
I think people tend to exaggerate, but I remember it was a story, and then he, and then he ran away because he was scared to take it, and then he went back later that evening to pick him up, and they yeah. were gone or something, okay. you know? Yeah. Oh, backwater. Yeah, backwater. backwater. Sorry, not still water, backwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah. That's no, we it. got it. We finally got it. Um, all right, so this is early 90s. What, 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 where, does the, where does your life go from there? Okay, so, yeah, so the transition from the metal band... Um, I should mention that there is one re- there's another reason why I think I just kind of decided like it was time to move on before tool got huge. Hmm. They played the jar a couple of times, Mason jar, hmm. in the early nineties. And I'd heard them because of working at Zia and they had their like their EP. It wasn't even the EP. The, the EP had come out and then they had like a little four, four track cassette. And I told the band, I'm like, this band's really good. We should try and open for them. And at the time, no one knew who they were. So I went to, to, uh, the owner of uh, of the mason jar, uh, Franco, I think was his name. He always wore clogs. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. Like wooden clogs. Wooden clogs. He, I think he was Italian or something, and he was uh, he was a character. And uh, I'm like, hey, can we can we play this show? Yeah, that's fine. You know, we got booked. So we show up, and uh, they're kind of there, and and uh, they do their you know rehearsal or whatever, and then we play. And the video exists on YouTube, like someone had filmed it, not us playing. But, but that night. That night. Yeah. But they came on stage with the intensity that they have now playing to 150 people, 100 people. And Maynard was just like, he had this weird sort of like mohawk with a mullet and he wouldn't stare at anyone. He'd stare past the crowd. And I watched that band and I said, this is what a fucking like band that's going to make it sounds like, and we don't sound like this. Like uh, it was like definitely like a, a learning moment. I'm like, yeah, these guys are good and we're not this good. And we might need to think of it, think about this a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. So we, we actually did it twice and then they blew up and then I was like, yeah, <laughs> we're still not opening for, for tool anymore, unfortunately, but, but that was, that was fun, you know, but, uh, to, to your point, yeah, the nineties hits I'm playing in this alternative band, alternate, like, in the vein of Afghan wigs and, and probably a little Nirvana and some other stuff. Um, we're playing like places like, uh, Jamaica blue, which was like a coffee house in Scottsdale and the Congo, which is no longer there in Scottsdale, which was like a great hang. It was almost like, it was like when coffee houses were huge and they Mm. had these couches with all kinds of cushions and shit. And it was just always a really good environment. Um, and at the time I was working at, uh, tower records doing, uh, all the you remember I talked about the Nirvana thing. Mm-hmm. I ended up doing because I, I have a background in art, uh, graphic art and and um, fine art. I was doing all the airbrush foam core boards that they would have in in Tower. So mm-hmm. like any album that would come out, I would actually work in the back, cut out foam core, airbrush it, and make it look like the album covers. And that's what I was doing at the time. Not making a bunch of money, but getting CDs and mm-hmm. you know tickets mm-hmm. and stuff. And then, yeah, I think it must have been around 94. I just kind of snapped and I'm like, okay, so the band's probably not going to make it. And uh, I make $8 an hour. <laughs> and uh, what the fuck am I going to do with my life? I don't have right. a college degree. And that's right. when, you know, that sort of like thing kicks in and it's like, I need to figure out the next step in my life, you know? And how old are you at this point? I think it was right around 24 or so, 24, 25. I was like, I'm not going to make it. Whoa. Yeah. And I mean, there must have been a ton of buzz in Tempe, right? With the gin blossoms being a thing, there must have been a lot of like industry interest in finding the next thing. 
But if you're not doing that thing, you know, like despair, like what, what are you going to do? We got to, we either have to move to a place that kind of accepts and, and celebrates this style of music or change what we do. Yeah. I think that was it. It was, there were a lot of AR people coming in, but yeah. they had it in their mind. It was like, if you're not gin blossoms, we don't want you. They were looking at other places, but as far as finding like more something beyond that, I just think the problem sometimes with the record labels, at least at the time, when something strikes gold, yes, everything follows. Yes, and then you have all the the, the B list and C list until they go. Oh, okay, we've we've saturated, and then they move on to something else. Right, and right. so that was right when we were trying to do something different. Yeah, and um, you know, I listen back to that music, and it's it's got its moments. It's not great, but it's it's good. We needed some editing and some you know, but. It were just you, wasn't our time. Were you cutting records too and demos? Yeah. We were doing demos, you know, yeah. at the time. There was uh, Chaton Studios. I sure. If you, In Paradise Valley when it was yeah, there? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. We did our demo there and, you know, we gave it out and tried to get some interest. But again, no manager. Right. Thinking that if we played a couple of good shows, someone would see us and we'd just get discovered, you know, it was this sort of naivete. Yeah, but that actually happened at that time. It, it did. It I just. Mean, it was still the luck of the draw sometimes. Right. It's just the right person, right place, right time. Sure. Um, it did happen, and we thought it would happen to us, and we, we put all our eggs in that basket, and then it just you know didn't, didn't happen. So what was the realization at 25? How did your life shift? Well, I met uh, someone that, you know, my first real serious girlfriend who um, was going to become um, my wife. Uh, and... Yeah, it was just like, I can't afford to, I can barely make ends meet. If I buy a new pair of shoes, I probably can't pay rent. And uh, yeah, just looking to the future, it's not that I didn't want to be involved in music in some way. And it's not that I was playing music just to make money, but to make a living. Yeah. And Tower Records wasn't going to cut it. And, and uh, you know, I worked at Borders after that too, and I was doing retail and ended up becoming a manager there, but still it's not going to cut it. It's not, it's not, uh, it's hard to be sustainable mm-hmm. on, on the pay that they, they pay you at those places. Mm-hmm. So what did you do? Well, then you fast forward to, uh, late nineties and I'm actually in New Jersey at that point. I had moved with my wife at the time and, uh, was working at borders and kind of climbed that ladder, so to speak, but just, you know, was not going to be my thing. And, uh, I had another one of those, okay, uh, retails, you've got to figure something out. So my friend was working for, a uh, advertising firm, um, in New York state, which was about an hour drive, like, like hauling ass each way. But he's like, Hey, I know you, you do art. Do you know anything about graphic design or doing stuff on computers? Not really. He's like, well, if you can get a computer, I can get you the programs, figure it out, figure it out. And so I, I made a bullshit portfolio of stuff of just like fake album covers, fake packaging, fake other things. And I went to go see them up in, in Nyack, New York. And they were like, well, you know, we'll, we'll pay you twenty $25,000 a year. And you know, and, and you're like, yes. yeah, and I was, I was like, yeah, cool. <laughs> and I uh, learned on the job and stuff. And I did. And, and, you know, it's like one of those things where you fake it till you make it kind of yeah. thing. Once I had that experience, then, then I was able to parlay that into, I was a real graphic designer uh-huh. and was doing that for, for many, many years before I kind of moved into the job I have now. And how long were you on the East coast? Uh, seven years. Oh shit. Yeah. So I was there from, 
was that right? Seven years. Yeah, 2000, or sorry, 97 to 2004. Wow. So, so you put some time in. Yeah, yeah. I was there during like 9-11 and saw all that happen. And wow. uh, my yeah. wife worked in New York and stuff. And, and uh, yeah, did did that and then went to another company doing graphic design. And, you know, it was great being close to New York. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And love New York, but... Um, yeah, but there was, there was an opportunity in Arizona that called me back. So well, what was that? Uh, Fender, Fender Musical Instruments. I've heard of it. It's, it's, it's an upstart. It's a small company. That it's kind of boutique-y yeah. now, yeah. but I think it has legs. Yeah, I think it might. Thank you for listening to this podcast. So the story goes, this has been a ton of fun. Um, really love connecting with creatives here in Arizona, but also uh in distant lands um i have neither a website nor an email super pro so i suggest hiring a carrier pigeon for your comments you just whisper in that little pigeon ear and tell him tell him go go tell brian this and this and this okay i i really want to pull the curtain back on what it's like to work at fender because the vision that i have in my head is that everyone kind of rolls up you know, between, you know, 10 and 11, you get a little espresso, you go sit on a beanbag chair, you, you pull a strat off the wall, and you shoot the shit, you go to lunch, you come back. <laughs> oh, you nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> so, did they, what, they, they, they posted a job, and you saw it, and you're like, oh, my God. Kind of, kind of. It was, my friend was already working um, at Fender doing a PR and he's like, dude, I think they're going to have like a packaging position, which is kind of, I was doing packaging, uh, graphic design. I think they're going to post this soon. You might want to think about it. And and we were ready for a change because, you know, East Coast can be a grind if you're not used to it. For and, sure. and we liked it, but it was like time and we weren't going to move into Manhattan or Brooklyn or anything. So we took a chance and drove back and, and I, you know, applied for it and had to wait a couple of months and it was a little bit of uh, biting my nails and you know, looking for other shittier jobs, waiting for them to get back to me. But then they did. And, and I started doing graphic design for them and I did for roughly like six years. So it'd be wow. like, uh, any sort of packs, you know, if you got a strap pack or something or acoustic pack, um, any sort of the brochures, posters, all that kind of stuff. Like I would end up doing, and I had a, a crew of, you know, there was like five or six of us that were doing all, all that stuff and whatever we needed graphically. Um, I, I kind of see Fender at the time was like the biggest little company that you had ever seen on the outside. They seemed like they were huge. And obviously my first guitar is a Fender. Right. I was fendered to the bone. Right. But internally it was just like, we were kind of, it's not that we were making up the rules, but kind of, there was no real, you know, we, we had room to grow and it was getting big and bigger, but there was a lot of leeway to kind of, um, grow within the company and try different stuff. And, and, uh, see what happens and you know so it was it was flexible but the, here's the irony was that when i first started there you couldn't wear jeans you couldn't you had to dress for success so you had to pretty much wear dockers and a dress shirt until friday and then you had jean fridays <laughs> i love it the, yeah. the 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 rock and roll corporate mecca is is making you wear chinos yes and then Friday, you get to let your hair down literally and figuratively, put some jeans on, and let's rock. That's it. That's it. Uh, did it Did it feel, I mean, did it feel like you got the fucking golden ticket to get this gig? 
Yeah, it was. I mean, for me, it was a dream come true because I was like, okay, I get to work for Fender. The things that I help create, I mean, people see all day long, and you know, and but as a musician, it's such a, it's a legacy, it's a legacy product. It, it, it's, it's so much a part of rock and roll history. And as a musician, as someone who performs, I would, I would just think, wow, this is like the culmination of all the, my favorite things. Rock and roll history, awesome products, cool culture, and I get to do graphic design. Yeah, I was pinching myself for probably the first couple of years um, as I kind of you know grew into the position that I had, uh, you know. But I had it, by that time I had had a lot of guitars. I knew a lot about guitars. Um, I knew a lot about amps. I knew just a lot about the culture already. So mm-hmm. yeah, I was immersed in it. I mean, it was like, oh wow, I can I can buy a custom shop guitar, you know, at a Fender discount, or mm-hmm. you know what I mean. And so mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, went hog wild and bought a bunch of stuff and. <laughs> You know, it was it was great for me. You know, I mean, I I got to be honest. At this point, you know, I don't have a huge collection, but it's all very choice. You know, right? Oh, I can of, only imagine. You know, over the over the years. Um, but the but having those sort of other tools helped me navigate Fender as it changed. Because because truly, since I've been there and I've been there eighteen years now, uh, I've had four or five different CEOs and different mm. eras of like focusing on different stuff. And, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's constantly changing and, and morphing and growing and the things I did a couple years ago aren't the same that I do now. Um, but I did get an opportunity past, I was getting tired of being a graphic designer. I know this is a weird thing to say cause I love guitars so much. You can only position them in graphic design so many ways. You can only put them in a poster so many ways <laughs> before it's like, okay, um, what do I, what else do I do with this? I, right. uh, you know. Right. Um, you know, met some met some cool artists and stuff, but then uh, I got an opportunity to work uh, with um, the amplifier team um, and become a product specialist. And uh, it was right at a time where there was like huge turmoil and we lost a bunch of people. And actually the person I kind of took the position over for, I felt really bad about this. He's a, a Tempe mainstay. Like when I was up and coming, there were a couple of guys that were playing long longs or Edsel's every weekend it was chuck hall in the brick wall uh-huh. yeah and it was brian page in the next huh. and both of them worked at fender yeah so chuck was working and doing what i was doing before i did uh-huh. so when he left i felt horrible you know but i was like okay here's a new opportunity and then became a part of the amp team and then became a product development manager and then a senior senior product development manager and and have been, been a part of that team and then talking about it, it was like, oh, I, you know, instead of just like making boxes, like I'm helping create amplifiers that I see on stages around the world. Like not me personally, but just right. what it is, what it sounds like, who it's for, working with my R&D team that they come into production and then they become mainstays on Holy stages shit. and studios and things like that. That's cool. What, I mean, what does that even look like? Like describe your role like how are you how are you a part of that process so i mean it comes down to i guess a lot of it is because of being a guitarist and knowing our history what have we made um looking at the market and seeing what are people into Hmm. and looking at musical genres as well Hmm. um i'm lucky in some ways in that we have such a huge huge history 
um, we're definitely standing on the shoulder of giants. You know, I mean, what Leo did and, and the reverence that, that people have towards the brand is, is huge. Um, and it's always in, in our ears and on, you know, um, behind us just kind of saying, just don't, don't fuck up, right. you know, try and try and look forward. But ultimately it's like, okay, so we've never reissued this amp from this time period. People love it. It's become highly collectible. Should we reissue it? Hmm. Hmm. Or, hey, this is a cool amp um, that we did, but maybe these people are saying this, you know, they like this, they don't like this. What if we updated it? And what if we created something unique from this? Or what if we took this classic amp and modified it? And maybe instead of two 12-inch speakers, it's like a single 12 and it's lightweight and you add a couple of extra things to make it more giggable. Because that's mm. that's like something as right. simple as like, I love a twin reverb. Sound amazing. Yeah. They're heavy as fuck. Right. Like, who wants to carry that all yeah. the time? The load-in is miserable. Yeah, it's miserable. And so it's like, well, what if we made this particular amp with one speaker? So it's for someone, it's like, it's 35 pounds instead of 85 pounds. Right. You know, things like that. And then even like digital stuff. Like we, we have these amps for not just beginners, but just any type of player where it's like, this thing has, you know, 30 different amps in it, mm -hmm. you know, 80 right. different effects in it. You can do all this different stuff. It's Bluetooth. You can, hmm. you know, stream and play along with stuff. It's Wi-Fi, so you can update to the newest sounds. Hmm. Whoa. Um, yeah, it's it's all over the place. So it's like we don't just speak to one player, but it's like also what's the price point? If we're mm -hmm. doing high-end, if we're doing, you know, hand-wired amps like the, the original ones, the way they used to do it, those are going to be at a premium because mm -hmm. it takes a really long time for someone to literally wire all the components in. Or we could do one where it's got a printed circuit board that's, you know, it, it saves time. Or we make it possibly in Mexico and, and we can reduce some of the costs so that, uh, uh, you know, like hot rods mm -hmm. the, that are kind of the, the mainstay uh, amps out there. Those are made in Mexico. You know, it helps keep the cost down. So gigging musicians who aren't making a ton of money can afford a tube amp right. that can be just their workhorse from show to show. Mm -hmm. So it's really that. It's kind of like, you know picking and choosing what the feature set is who it's for is it vintage style is it modern style and then working with r&d to make sure it sounds right it looks right and you drive the ship in a way you wow. you you create kind of like okay it sounds this doesn't sound good okay this sounds like it's rattling and we need to change this like things mm. like that mm -hmm. it's it's almost like being a captain of of that that project yeah. were 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 you like a gearhead like back in the day, like was gear like an important thing for you? Was that a, was that an interest that developed over time? So I think early on, you know, obviously I said I had a Fender Strat, and then my first amp was a Fender amp that actually was a bad time for Fender. It blew up a couple times, and I traded it in. Um, I wasn't a gearhead, but I definitely it was always like when I got in a Metallic, it was like I gotta have a Mesa Boogie. Right. Bought a you know I, I like Steve Vai, gotta buy a Gem. Right. Uh, I wouldn't say those are classic amps or guitars, but like they were, you had at least paid attention. Right. To it. I wasn't just like, just give me a guitar and I'll just go for it. Right. But over time, yeah, it's like, I started to learn more about the history of Fender and other amps and, and guitars too. And mm -hmm. then it's like, yeah, I'm going to work towards that. So it's like, it finally, I was like, I want to get a Les Paul. I need to find out what, what that is and what's important. And I've gone mm -hmm. down the deep dives on a lot of stuff. I've wasted a lot of time chasing these things that people talk about online you mm. know the the mojo and the this and the that and mm. oh if you don't if, if you don't have this it doesn't sound right mm. i've done a lot of those things to prove to myself okay that's bullshit or yeah that makes a tonal difference or whatever so yeah by the time i was at fender 
I definitely was, I knew stuff. I knew how to set up a guitar. Um, if you've ever dealt with, um, techs or people that set up your guitars and stuff, there was a time in the Valley where they were all just jerks. There was a guy, a local, a famous local guy that set up every, you know, everyone's guitars. I remember going in there and he's like, Oh, look at this thing. What a piece of shit. Yeah. Look at the tremolos in the Who, who installed this tremolo? This is, this is in the wrong spot. Oh, can I fix it? No, it's, it's too late. It's, it's screwed. You know, you'll, you'll be lucky if you get a couple hundred for this. And just leaving miserable. And I was like, right. I cannot deal with the, I can't deal because I think that person maybe because they're working in a small place for a long period of time. And I'm not saying this is everyone, obviously, right. but certain guys, it's like, I think it gets to them and then they can take out their anger. It's the, on other people. it's the fucking ornery sound guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing. Right? Different, different, yeah. Different medium maybe, but it's like, bro, if you hate your life, don't make mine miserable in the fucking wake of your bullshit. If you're upset, don't work here anymore. But can I just play this fucking gig and I feel like a complete asshole? Yeah. You, you, know? you know. You go through it all the time, I'm sure, for, for, for just place to place. Yeah. Some guys are super nice and cool, and some guys, it's like, you, it's time for you to retire or find a new job. Yes. And it can be the same at music stores. There's a particular music store in town yeah. where sometimes the guys, I feel like they've been at a little too long. Right. So... They've forgotten the niceties of like a customer coming in, right? And you can't you can't afford to do that these days because no, no, there are no. places online where it's oh, like, oh yeah, you can return it. You can that we will custom select it. We'll put new strings on. We'll do all these things for right. you. And they're like, get out of here! No, you can't turn it up. No, you can't touch it. You know, right? Right? It, it, it you can't do that these days, right. or you shouldn't do that these these days. Did did Fender? see just an incredible bump during pandemic did 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 everyone in their neighbor buy a fucking strat yes <laughs> yes yes it was i mean i think for a lot of companies they did very well um almost all mi you know music industry um, yeah. did really well during this yeah um we did but but ultimately it's the same thing that you're hearing in all the other industries and i don't want to belabor this because i think people are probably fucking sick of hearing supply chain issues uh-huh but we suffer from it as well because it just it's that trickle down of like all these components and, sure. and things that you get are made all over the world sometimes. Right. You know, you can't you can't even make them in the US if you wanted to. So you right. have to go somewhere else. Well, they're in a pandemic and so people can't work like they used to. So production slowed to half. So next thing you know, normal things that we used to get all the time, tubes, transformers, speakers, wood. Right. It all becomes an issue over mm. time, you know, because, mm -hmm. because the demand was so high, everyone wanted to learn to play guitar. Right. My wife, yeah. my wife ended up, you know, learning to play guitar and sing. And now she's like working on it through the pandemic, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it was a huge, huge sort of raise, raising the bar as far as, um, musicians again, which is great. You know, I mean, right. we, we talk about it forever because I think everyone thought guitar was dead. Like like ten years ago, oh, yeah. there were articles as like is guitar dead? You know, they, I mean, it's it's all clickbait, but still. Right. But now it's like, yeah, everyone bought a guitar, everyone bought a, an amp or a headphone amplifier, and everyone was taking lessons and and learning stuff. And but I think the change that that maybe happened was, I think when I was young, the idea was that you learn to play guitar, you get in a band, you get famous, you get rich, you meet chicks or dudes or whatever mm -hmm. i think these days like it's far more realistic where i think people it's like learn a guitar play with friends play some shows have a great time 
I'm probably not going to get famous from this. I'm probably not going to get rich from this. I might meet a guy or a girl from this, but, mm-hmm. but it's, it's just like, I think, I think the expectations of what comes out of it changed hmm. because also bands that really do want to make it, they have to do it for themselves these days. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times you will. Yeah. They have to be the label. They have to be the PR firm. They have to do their own marketing. They have to have a social media presence. They have to run their own website. They have to book their own gig. I mean, it's like you, if you don't completely buy in to the thing, you're kind of fucked. Right. I mean, sure, you can you can make a little career out of playing local spots. And I have plenty of friends who do it. God bless them. Um, But you really have to be steering this fucking ship and every ounce, every inch of that ship you need to be in control of. Yeah. Otherwise, no one's going to fucking touch you. And the first thing they fucking say, how many streams and how many followers? You're like, oh, fucking hell. Really? That's the metric now? Anyway. Yeah, the paradigm is, is shifted. So I can imagine for, for you just like adapting. I mean, it's in every aspect and form, even the way Fender, you know, mm-hmm. like like social media and, and, mm-hmm. and all the other stuff, TikToks and whatever. It's right. like, I, I don't have time for that, but I appreciate, I really do appreciate what Fender has tried to do as far as opening up the community, as far as their marketing and otherwise. Um, there are other guitar companies that have been a little slower on the uptick of that, where it's still kind of a, a bro club. Uh-huh. Where it's just like it's white dudes. It's old white dudes. Right. Old boys club. Yeah. And yeah. it's just like the demographic has shifted. So it's just like mm-hmm. it's inclusive for mm-hmm. everyone. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's diverse. It's, you know, and and so we've embraced that in the past several years. And I'm ha- I'm really happy about that. I mean, how incredible that a company that size can make these like seismic shifts and and change the course, you know. It's just super, it's super impressive. And I, I mean, I could talk to you. I'm just so curious about the culture of Fender, how Fender has evolved. I mean, literally we could do like a part two of this podcast. Um, Make guitar great again. I'm here to tell you about Rare Disease Renegades. Rare Disease Renegades is a nonprofit. It's a 501c3 founded by my friends, Billy and Michelle. It's a charity created to accelerate science in 2020 billy and michelle's son caffrey was diagnosed with duchenne muscular dystrophy this is a rare disease caused by a genetic mutation that renders muscles unable to recover from activity it starts with the legs then all limbs and ultimately impacts the lungs and heart there's no cure for this life-limiting disease. Caffrey is going to be 12 this May, and we need science to move a bit faster for him. I hope that you take a moment to check out rarediseaserenegades.org and find a way to support this worthy cause. If you could only pick one Fender amp, and you're the guy that would know every era, what would it be? What would the, what would the amp be? It's probably going to be pretty boring to say, but I would say it's probably a tie between a Princeton reverb and a deluxe reverb, and maybe the deluxe would would win by a hair. Is there an era? Uh, well, I mean, early '60s. I mean, they, they started '63, uh, '64, so right around there, just before CBS took over. Uh, I mean, the reissues we do now, we do a, a hand wired uh, deluxe reverb 
um, that's very, very close to the original. I had an original that I bought before I moved to LA because I was like, if I'm going to have a deluxe, I want the mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And then I did a shootout with the new one, and I was like, mm, the new one wins. And so I no shit yeah. So I sold the the vintage one. Oh. So I mean, a deluxe reverb is just it's just like the ultimate workhorse to me. So. If I was going to pick a vintage one, I'd pick the deluxe. But even a, even if I wasn't, um, I'd pick a deluxe reverb. Even even the Tone Masters, which I know we haven't really talked about, but those are like really interesting thing where they look like an original all tube amp, but it's mm. digital. Hmm. And instead of doing a million things, it's just a lot of processing to do the one thing. Mm-hmm. And they've kind of taken the guitar world by storm. So a- any one of those deluxes, even a tweed deluxe, I would take. And and walk me through what that is kind of on a mechanical side. So it's pretty interesting. It's, you know, like as, as things get better for, for modeling technology, you know, um, there are a lot of companies that have, you know, they're very expensive, uh, you know, Helix or... Um, Axe Effects has like a rack unit and, mm-hmm. and Kemper and they, they have a ton of processing power that you would use for a computer to, to emulate all these different amps, mm-hmm. you know, they have all this stuff and that's, that's super cool and fun and interesting. But we posed the question, what if we just took all that processing power and just made it sound as close to an all two one as, as you can make it. Hmm. And so that was the goal. And so externally it looks just like a twin reverb or a deluxe reverb and um yeah but it's like but they modeled the reverb they modeled the tremolo they modeled every nuance as you turn up the volume because those amps they distort but only if you turn them all you know mm-hmm. up right but then because we did it in a digital way you have other features you can do where it has like xr out so let's say you're playing a gig and they don't want you to run sound you know, like it's on stage oh, or whatever. I see. You put it on standby, the XLR out goes out, but not just that, it has impulse responses, which is a big deal these days for digital people where we actually recorded the amp with a certain microphone. Okay. And so that goes directly into a PA system and sounds great without ever having it on. So Whoa. I record at home all the time with the, with the um, amp turned off, but just running into, you know, my DAW. Wow. And it sounds, it sounds great. And wow. then attenuation too. So, so because those amps have, you have to turn them up to get the volume. Right. That's really loud. Right. So then the attenuator on the back, you can actually scale down bit by bit. So like the deluxe goes down to 0.2 Watts and the twin goes down to one Watt. So you could crank up a deluxe, get the natural breakup right. at like bedroom volumes. Whoa. So they've done really well, but like we, we debuted them, I want to say two years ago, almost three years ago at Summer Nam, And I mean, the haters were on it, man. <laughs> people love their tubes. It, it, it's a weird thing with, with, with a, a brand where people love it so much. The hate flows so quickly and so strongly. <laughs> the hate flows strong with you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Good, good. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's been taken over in a lot of places, especially the concerns with tubes in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been tube shortages when people have been trying to rip, you know, buy, um, tubes and they're sold out. It's like, do I want to deal with this anymore? You know, right. we want, we want to make tubes as long as we can, a uh, tube amps as long as we can possibly do it. But if you can't, or, or you don't have that ability, it's like these sounds so close. Yeah. If you look, we just saw like recently Ben Harper, uh, start, you know, he, he has like, uh, old, um, Dumble amps, which are like 50,000, hundred thousand dollar amps. Now. Jesus. 
he played one. And he's like, this sounds really good. So he's got a Tone Master Super Reverb. Lenny Kravitz, who's a vintage head, we saw some pictures. He had one on stage live that he was using. Wow. So like little by little, it's like it's being accepted by the tastemakers and things right. like that. Because right. everyone has their opinion about this stuff and they think they can hear it and all that stuff. And I don't want to get into the semantics of, you know, hearing with your eyes or whatever. But I will tell you, like... They just sound really good, and so as as a viable option. Also, they they're light as hell. Right, so right. a deluxe is normally about fifty pounds. They're twenty five pounds. The twins like eighty five pounds. The tone masters thirty five pounds. Oh my god! So it's it's a deal. Anyway, that's a long way of saying a deluxe reverb. Where who like who manufactures tubes? So there are, there were three places pretty much in the world that made them, Russia, Slovakia, and China. And then a couple of years ago, the Chinese factory actually, I think it burned down is mm. what happened. And they're rebuilding, but it's taking a long time. So that leaves Slovakia and Russia. Well, we know what's going on with Russia right now. I haven't heard anything. What's, what's well, cracking? It's not good. Oh. It's not good. It's, mm. it's pretty bad. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but because of all the all the issues and stuff, getting tubes from Russia has been very difficult. So now, if we get if we are able to get them, which we, it looks like we will, hmm. you know, we're talking about tariffs and things like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, for the time being. Sovtech, so, uh, Sovtech is is a part of it. New Sensor is like the the company that the overall brand. Okay. It's owned by uh, Mike Matthews of Electroharmonics, and he has a two factory in Russia. And so, yeah, they still build them. And then Slovakia, JJ's. Hmm. Um, there are some other up and coming companies. There's a, a company in the U S that's trying to ramp up to make tubes for amps. It's going to take a while, I think. Yeah. And there's another Chinese company that was an offshoot from Shiguang, which was the tube company that's, that's, that makes, um, also hi-fi tubes and they're, they're making other tubes. So there, there are options and there is a mm-hmm. silver lining. It's not like all doom and gloom, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, but because, it's made in comp- it's made in countries where the EPA standards are low because if mm-hmm. we tried to do that in the US it'd be very expensive right. because of just standards there's there's hazardous materials in tubes um, a lot of these places are eastern bloc where they mm-hmm. still were using tubes for government things i mean that's what we forget is uh, for a long time the tubes were so good because they were government specced hmm. they had to work in missile silos and hmm. and all these things so then they would make sure that they, they were made really really well hmm. um the specs have changed a bit but that's why in russia i mean i'm i'm assuming they're still using tubes and and some other antiquated equipment and stuff right but it's a, it's a dying thing it's like us and hi-fi people we're the only ones right. that use tubes right yeah and by the way no love that i sovtech just came off the top of my dome i just thought of it no mad respect there okay good yeah yeah no no it's i, I mean like, jesus I, I, I'm I feel like I'm dropping some knowledge here. You are. Okay. No, it's, it's, I mean, I think for, for the gearheads will, will know their, their stuff in, in general, but it's like, yeah, that's not a tube name that you hear all the time. You know what I mean? It's like, you have to kind of have gone through some shit to know that. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. If you, and I've never asked this question of any guest on the, on the podcast, I just thought of it today, but if you could pick a time in musical history and live in that time, what would it be and why? Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean, yes and no. I mean, obviously, like, late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. 
crazy time for music. Same. Same. Like, same. Would, would I love it for the rest of my life? I don't know if I could spend a couple years there through, you know, C. Zeppelin and Hendrix and Cream and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I feel pretty lucky. We were talking about the 90s. It's like, that was right. a really good time too. And yeah. I, I am of the age now where it's like, I can tell people I saw, you know, Nirvana and small clubs and all this stuff. And they're like, really? You know, like <laughs> I've become the old dude. It's like, you know, there's that t-shirt. It's like, I may be old, but I went to all the cool shows. I feel a little like that so i'm 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 pretty happy with the fact that i i got to be there during that sort of revolution in the 90s of just music kind of turning on its head so but i'd say 70s 70s yeah so on the break i asked you what what are your thoughts on steely dan and you mentioned that it took you a minute but you now appreciate it it took me a long minute it took me it took me my 40s to to you know, beyond the the hits that I heard, I, I for whatever reason, and I love jazz. Like I, I have tons of jazz records. That sort of merging of jazz and rock, and like Donald Fagan's voice, which is an acquired taste. Yes, agreed. It was. I just didn't get it. It was uh-huh. very, and also it was tied to a time, and it's like the kind of the excess of the '70s and the cocaine and a little bit of yacht rock and all that. I don't know. I just was like, uh, I mean, I could I respect it. Yeah. That's the thing is there's a lot of music I just don't care for and people will fight me on it. But I'm like, look, I respect it. It's just not my thing. Right. But yeah, I turned in my 40s and I mentioned the other one, the Eagles. Yeah. I hated the Eagles growing up and then watched the documentary. Yeah. And I was like, I need to go back. And then I hit the deeper cuts. And I was like, holy shit. Like these guys are great. And then Fender does like a, they do band jams every so often. We've taken a hiatus during the pandemic and we're just going to have our first one coming up in LA, but I've done them several times. And one time we did the Eagles uh. and then one time I did Steely Dan too. And those were two of the hardest sort of like learning lessons of playing those songs live uh, yes. that I've really ever gone through. What was the, what was the set list for the Steely Dan? Uh, I mean, jam? it was like, we did peg, we had to do that. Um, <laughs> Obligatory peg. Yeah, uh, I'm like I'm I'm drawing a blank. Like uh, like reeling in the years. We, uh, we didn't do reeling in the years. Do it again. No, um, no, we did uh, black cow. Uh, no green earrings. Uh, no. Uh, oh, um, dirty wood? Josie. We did Josie. Oh, Josie. We did. Uh, oh man. I'm sorry, I am drawing a blank right now. It's it was all like good. Fi- it was like five songs. It wasn't a I huge have the, set list. Oh, it was five songs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't. It like wasn't a like whole... a ninety-minute thing. No, because you've got like eight bands, you know, in, you. in an evening. So we we did those. Um, but I mean, it was it was a blast. Yeah. I think we did Bodhisattva. Oh yeah. Yeah, we shit. did that. Um, was it three? Maybe there was a fourth one. Right. Anyway, but yeah. it was like. But now you dig it. I do, and, and and I digged it then, but it was just like you you get respect when you realize how hard these things are, and to try mm-hmm. and nail the solo to peg. Oh no, I, I still it's I'm like a fifty fifty split. Like uh, on one night I can just nail it, and then another night I'm gonna shit the bed. <laughs> you know, it's just like Jay Graydon's like solo is just it's it's a really interesting and deceptively difficult right. solo to nail. Right, right, yeah. I feel like that's that's one thing that they did really well was package these really kind of complex ideas in something that appears very simple. It's an easy groove, but when you start to get into the nuts and bolts of the motherfucker, you're, it, you're in the weeds. Cause yeah. these were not fucking slackers that were playing these parts. I mean, best 
best motherfuckers on the planet were on these records. And every fucking song was a different band, basically, you know. So now you have to kind of cop Larry Carlton. Now you got to cop this other great player. Now you got to cop this other. It's like, Jesus, man, you know, I'm a big fan. Yeah, well, I mean, even the chord structure is like, you know, Mm -hmm. I came from metal where it's like, you know, it's all harmonic minor, just doom and gloom and stuff. And we don't add sevenths. We don't add nines. We don't add elevenths. We sure as hell don't add thirteenths. But those motherfuckers, it's just like, how can we, how can we make this, right. you know, a pop song, you know, using these like crazy, you know, right, right, sharp seven, sharp nine chords, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's cool. It's it's, I mean, just mad props to them for for finding a way to do that. Yeah. So you were in Los Angeles for a, a bit, five, you know, five, five years, years, five yeah. years, shit, and now you're back in town. Yeah. Uh, welcome home. Thanks. Yeah, happy I'm happy to, have to be you back. Here. Yeah. Happy to have you here. Um, and you mentioned that you're kind of out playing. Yeah, I just started uh, gigging again. Um, you know, I had a band with with other coworkers in, in L.A. at Fender. All great players, uh, kind of country rock band. It was great, but but finding the gigs and, mm-hmm. and getting out there to, to play the right places became very daunting. Mm-hmm. But now that you're here in Phoenix, uh, kind of a new band that you're putting together and and having some gigs coming up. You mentioned one in in June potentially. So, where do people? Where would people find out where you're playing and and kind of what's happening for you? That's a really good question. I don't have a definitive answer except for like like so on social media, just like like posing to friends. Again, I've never been good at promotion. Mm-hmm. Still not. Um, but the band I'm playing with, K- uh, Caleb Daly, like he just released an album on his record label of these uh, killer country covers that are just like kind of deconstructed and, and I don't even know how to explain it, but it's definitely not traditional country. Mm. And so he put together a group of musicians to do this and it's been a blast. And and here's the thing. It's, it's not that I don't want to play guitar in bands, but I'm, I've been actively trying to play pedal steel in bands. That was kind of my next question. So the transition from guitar to pedal steel, like how did that happen and why? I mean, because that, that instrument to me is like, it's like uh, B3 when you, when you pad, when you feather with, the, with your feet and you're playing. Like, bro, there's too much going on. I guess I must be a sadist. I don't, I don't know. Or a masochist, right? <laughs> uh, I just always loved the sound of it. And I was trying to do, you know, the faux guitar pedal steel bends but it was always kind of in the back of my mind i've thought about it for years and you know I, we, we mentioned briefly uh you know i i when i first wanted to you know john rowhouse is in town and i was got be, befriended him and talked to him and asked him some some questions about it and he gave me what i said you know some good advice but i didn't listen he's like <laughs> well get yourself a you know a real steel and i'm like well i'm thinking about getting a, a fender you know because fender made pedal steels in the late well, 50s, they made lap steels, and in the 60s, they made pedal steels. And at the time, the pedal steel was a very nebulous, constantly changing as far as the tunings and strings and stuff. But he said, don't, don't buy a Fender because they don't stay in tune, and they might break down on you and stuff. Well, I didn't listen. Mm-hmm. I found one up in Flagstaff at... Uh, what is it? Amp AZ Music Pro or whatever. So, no, what's it called up there? It's it's the one music shop in Flagstaff. It's a great shop, and they had mm-hmm. a, a 1961 or 63 pedal steel. 
And I bought it. I brought it home and it sounded really good and it didn't stay in tune and it broke almost immediately. <laughs> and uh it was right. John Rahouse. And then yeah, and then I went I went down the path, but it's it's a weird instrument. I, I equate it to playing guitar while riding a bike. Oh, I think a lot of people, when you're sitting down, they know about the pedals. They don't understand that there's like le- levers too on each leg that you have to engage to do stuff. It's Jesus. it's a lot of muscle memory, and yeah. it's it takes time. And there's a, some other dumb anecdote that I heard where someone asked a pedal steel player, "How long does it take to to play pedal steel?" And the guy says, "Well, about two years." And he's like, "Oh, two years." He's like, "Yeah." Two years to suck, but you'll get better. <laughs> and there, there's something to it. I'm coming up on like five years of truly committing to it. And I do feel like I've, I've made huge progress and playing in bands and stuff, but there's still times where I'm just like, I listen back to myself and I'm like, Oh man, yeah. but it's, it's, I mean, I love it. I, I, there's something very Zen about it for me. Mm-hmm. I needed something like, not that I've like mastered guitar by any means. There's so much to learn, but I needed another outlet just mm-hmm. to, you know, I'm, I'm a side man. Like I've, I've fronted a couple of bands. I don't really love my voice. Um, and I don't really like being a front man. I like being someone that, you know, puts the sauce on things, mm-hmm. you know, the side man. So it's like learning steel and guitar and other stuff. I like being that person, a mm-hmm. utility guy. Mm-hmm. So this was a, a, an extension of that, but it's, it's definitely the hardest thing I've done on a musical instrument of, of anything, you know, cause it's just, so complex it is and yeah. even the tuning it's just right. like the way it's tuned the top two strings actually it's like it goes low to high but then the last two strings you kind of go back low a little bit and then high but but not in the same way it, it's you know and every every you know it's it, whereas a guitar is a very like linear yes. thing pedal steel isn't really that way you have pockets of places and you can huh. do a whole major scale in one position without yeah. ever moving just by uh, the strings and by the pedals and levers that you use. So it's just like a move. It's like movable chords. Yeah. You play a chord here, you press these, you know, pedals and then now you have a new chord and you press this lever with this pedal and you have a new chord. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And, and bless my wife for dealing with me obsessed, you know, through the pandemic and before while it sounded like, I mean, I equated to like cats fucking right you know right, it's right. just like screechy just or, or cat in heat you know right, like right. just screechy until <laughs> until you get the tone down and the feel right yeah right. not for the faint of heart no god damn no it looking at it stresses me out yeah. you know well it's 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 a i definitely love it and and the um group of people that play it it's a very tight-knit group because mm. it's like it's antiquated and you know, it's, it's like the guy that has the information that no one else knows unless another person. Then you, you find another steel person and you nerd out for a couple of minutes. Like what's your copedon and all, you know, all the dumb stuff that, that no one wants to know. My wife doesn't want to know any of that stuff. She doesn't want to know about the, the, you know, the, the added levers and stuff. Right. Doesn't care. Right. And I right. get it. No one does. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to, uh, to, uh, hearing you play and, and busting out the, the pedal steel and, and happy that you're back in town and, and loved picking your brain. Um, thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I mean, when you, when you suggested, I, I was like, this sounds like a, a cool, fun thing to do. So yeah, I mean, I love just talking music and I mean, I've always had a, um, a lot of respect for what you do. Thanks. And we've known each other, I mean, kind of on and off for, for quite a while now. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of nice. I'm glad that, that you're thriving here and you know, I, 
um, hopefully I'll do the same and, you know, our pass will cross or whatever. And, you know, another steel player at some point. There's just something so evocative about that sound. And when it's done right, can take some, a good song and make it great. It's the frosting. That's, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I I agree with you. And I definitely, from someone that's a a metal head that (laughs) went into alternative and other stuff, my goal, my whole goal is to, to, to try and play steel on everything. My, my hero is Greg Lease. And I've gotten to know him a bit and he's an amazing player, but it's like he plays with the country, you know, he'll play with Katie Lang and then he'll play with Bonnie Vare and then he plays mm. with St. Vincent and then he mm. plays with, you know, a vampire weekend, like he'll do it all. And it, whatever it is, he just, it just perfectly fits. Mm. And that's what I'm hoping is, is to, to do all kinds of stuff, you know, and yeah. that's hopefully we'll see where it goes. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for your time, Rick. Appreciate you. Glad you're back in town. I will, uh, I'm going to call you. I'm maybe, around. Maybe I'll text. I'm around. You could text. You could call. I'll DM. Let me send you, you a fax. D- yep. Yep. You could hashtag whatever. Whatever. We could TikTok if you want, I think. I don't know. Can you do that? I don't know. Well, let's TikTok each other. <laughs> yes. That's what I'm saying. Just each other. Not anyone else. Just you and me. I'll send you personal TikToks. <laughs> oh, shit. So the story goes.